0: back to worth recovery a podcast featuring women and sex addiction i'm amy i'm a recovering sex addict and i've been sober since december 2nd of 2012 thanks for tuning in today thank you for the incredible outpouring of continued support that you've given me your emails and messages mean so much i'm so grateful for you my fellow travelers on this journey I know our circumstances are different. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. Some of us are new to recovery. Some of us have been doing this for many years. Our experiences, our forms of acting out, and our programs are varied and different. Probably our socioeconomic circumstances are also just as varied and just as different. Yet, we are all connected. We are all walking this road of recovery. And we don't have to do it alone. Addiction is such an isolating disease. It whispers to us that we are unacceptable and that people won't love us. It tells us to hide in the dark, to put on a mask, and to keep it all together. But you know what? We don't have to do that. When I walked into the doors of my first recovery meeting, space was made for me. A circle of women embraced me and supported me. They held on to me. They created a place for me, a safe place for me to bring the inside out. That is one of my goals is to create that space for all women in addiction, a place where we can rally together and support each other, a place of acceptance, a place of support, and a place of healing. And that is why I am super excited today to announce the very first Worth Recovery group coaching course. Are you excited? Because I totally am. This course is called Igniting Recovery, and it's a four-week group coaching course that is about building your personalized program of recovery. It follows the format of learn, apply, and share. Every day has a specific topic that you will read or learn about. Then you'll complete some activities to apply your new knowledge to your own life, implement it, and use it in your own life, and then prepare some kind of group response that you will share with the women in the course. More information, including the entire course outline, is available on the website, worthrecovery.com. If you're new to recovery, this is an awesome opportunity for you to put your feet on solid ground and get off on the right foot. If you're seasoned in recovery, this is still a really valuable course for you. Putting it together has done great things for my personal recovery. It's helped me to evaluate my own processes and procedures and to fill in some of those holes that had kind of developed in my recovery, either where I've gotten lazy or just where things have changed. It helped me to change some of the things that I've been doing to address more of my current problems, my current concerns that I have in addiction and recovery. I'm really excited about it. The course is going to begin May 22nd and run through June 18th and we'll continue to have courses running every month. There are only 10 spaces available in this first course offering and I know that they will sell and fill up really quickly. So if this is something you're interested in, get on the website and check it out. I am super excited about it. We also have additional course offerings that will be coming soon that I've been working on. So excited about these as well. So stay tuned for them. And uh, I'm super excited to get you all connected and learning from and about each other. I think it's going to be a really great opportunity. Now, let's get on to today's topic. (laughs) Today is episode 26, and I've titled this episode Living in Recovery. Last weekend, as I was driving home from one of my 12 step fellowship meetings, the woman I was carpooling with turned to me and asked, Amy, Will you attend meetings for the rest of your life? (laughs) I thought about it. I kind of laughed maybe a little bit, at least to myself, and I immediately responded, yes, yes, I will. Mm, It seemed that that wasn't quite the answer she was looking for. At least that was the story I was telling myself based on her body language and her reaction. I dug a little deeper and told her a few of the reasons why I need meetings. I think it went okay, but the idea kind of stuck with me. I know that I will always go to meetings, and I'll go to meetings for the rest of my life. I know I have to go to meetings for the rest of my life, but I needed a few more concrete reasons why. I spent some time thinking about it, and I'd like to share just three quick reasons with you why I will go to meetings for the rest of my life. First, I'll go to meetings for the rest of my life because I need to be reminded of how bad it was seeing new women come into the program witnessing their struggle with shame and denial actually helps me it reminds me that without daily diligence i could easily start acting out again seeing these women in pain helps me stay connected to how bad it was for me it motivates me to keep working my program because i don't ever ever want to be back there again And every time I hear someone be vulnerable and share their story, every time I connect with their pain, even just a little bit, it heals me. I can't explain it, but being witness to their addiction and to their hard work heals a little bit of my soul. And the more often that I do that, the faster I heal. The second reason I will go to meetings for the rest of my life is because meetings are like maintenance. We have maintenance for our cars, maintenance for our house. We clean things up and we clean things out. Meetings do that for me. They allow a space for me to share whatever is going on in my head, no matter how crazy, how silly, how dark, or even how triggering it may be. Meetings provide a safe place for me to speak to it. Because I am only as sick as my secrets. And I need a place where I can share my secrets and bring the inside out. Meetings provide that opportunity for me. And third, I need meetings to remind me that the world does not revolve around me. <laughs> when I come to meetings, I'm not more or less important than anyone else in the room. I'm not a podcaster or a sponsor. I'm not a strategy consultant or a college professor. I'm not a daughter, a sister, an aunt. All of these titles come with responsibility to others. And some of them come with authority as well. I need to be reminded that my ability to function in all of these roles and titles is hinged upon my commitment to myself to stay in recovery. It is recovery that has given me the ability to function in all of these areas. It is recovery that has given me my relationship with my higher power that I depend on daily for breath and support. Sitting in a circle where we are all equals, facing the same addiction, where no one is more important than another, where I am privileged to be a witness for others in recovery is humbling. It reminds me that I am just one of many, many people on this earth and that I want to be a part of them. And the only way to do that is to come to meetings and to partake of the fellowship. And I need meetings to remind me of that. These are just a few of the reasons I will attend meetings for the rest of my life. I've been thinking about it a lot. I ended our conversation with this woman on Saturday by saying something like, Attending meetings is the price I pay to live in recovery. The price I pay to live in recovery. And then I found myself asking a whole different question. What exactly does that mean to live in recovery? What does life in recovery look like? Many of the 12 step literature books from the various programs we have offer us promises of living in recovery. They offer ideas about what life without addiction could look like. One of my favorites is the 12 promises from the AA Big Book. This comes from page 83 when they're talking about step nine. And it says, quote, If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I love these promises. I remember the first term. I remember the first time I heard them. I thought they were crazy. Of course I regret my past, and I just wish I could just sweep it all away and make it go away. I couldn't see any way my own experiences could benefit others, or the way that I screwed up my life could be of any help to anyone. I felt useless, and I couldn't see how I could ever positively contribute to the world again. But now nearly five years later in recovery with three years and four months of sobriety, I promise that these promises are real and they do appear in our lives as we live in recovery. I've had experiences with nearly every single one of those promises. In fact, just the other day, one of my sponsees asked me, how do you always seem to know exactly what to say all of the time. It's like you can read my thoughts and know exactly where I'm at and what I need to hear. I told her and I tell you now, it's not me. My higher power gives me those words. I pray for her and all of you. And I know that you pray to your higher power as well. And many times I have felt words come to my mind and out of my mouth that I know were not my own. They were the words that she needed to hear. I see how my experiences help others. My higher power helps me relate those experiences to other people. I feel useful. I know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. That promise happens in my life all of the time. I know that God is doing for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. These promises give me a glimpse into what it is like to live in recovery. Recovery is about living actually living, not fantasizing, not escaping, not avoiding, not self-medicating, but actually living. And living is hard. (laughs) Facing the reality of what your life, family, community, and world really is, is hard work. It requires everything that we have and are. It is the essence of wholehearted living and vulnerability that Brene Brown talks about all the time, I hope you're a Brene Brown fan. If not, call me. We need to talk because you need to be a Brene Brown fan. It's what Patrick Carnes writes about in his books, and particularly the book that he writes about twelve the twelve principles of recovery. There is so much out there about how to live in recovery and what life in recovery can look like. I've thought about it a lot. What does it mean to live in recovery? And I've thought of four principles that have really helped me. The four I would say that have been the most helpful to me in living in recovery and staying in recovery. First, living in recovery requires me to live in acceptance. Prior to recovery, I lived in a world I was supposed to be able to control. Not knowing that that was actually impossible and really not my responsibility, I lived in constant guilt, worry, anxiety, and shame about all the things I couldn't seem to control. The feelings of others, how people reacted to me, people's poor choices, the weather, disease, injury, accidents, nature, etc., 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 right? The list goes on. I lived in this world where if I was only kinder, gentler, more spiritual, more honest, stronger, more loving, less selfish, and more self-sacrificing, Things would have worked out the way that I wanted them. At least that's what I was told all of the time. That somehow my actions could bind and control the thoughts, words, and actions of others. I've learned in recovery that that is just simply not true. Not true at all. Do I have an obligation to myself to be my very best self? Absolutely I do. I want to be kind, gentle, spiritual, honest, and strong. I want to be loving, open, and brave. But... I have learned that even if I am perfect at every single one of those things, it does not at all guarantee the outcome of anything in my life. Being honest and spiritual will not prevent cancer from striking in my family. Being kind and loving will not prevent a car accident when the other person is drunk driving. I might say something or handle a tough situation in the absolute perfect way that my therapist would require and and recommend to me, and I still cannot control how the other person will react. Recovery has taught me to control what I can control, my own actions, and live in acceptance of the rest of the world. My actions cannot bind the powers of the world and control who gets cancer, who suffers death, who is in an accident, who has children and who doesn't, who stays in recovery, who loves me, or how others treat people. All I can do is worry about my own actions and accept the rest of the world. Once I understood that, a brand new world was open to me. Because I had believed that my actions controlled both the universe and the will and the actions of others, I couldn't make a mistake. I couldn't even think about making a mistake. I couldn't even breathe or hint at the word mistake. There was no room in my life for the smallest of mistakes. I had this perfectionist complex that said, others are depending on you to be perfect so that they can be happy so they can be whole, and so that they can get their needs met. It's your job to be perfect so that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish. (laughs) This was a huge problem in my life. Huge. I had made many, 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 many mistakes. And that's probably not enough many's. But I was incredibly intolerant of them. And because of that, I hated myself. I hated who I was, what I looked like, what I did, how I talked, what I said. I hated everything. I became really good at putting on a mask, acting the part of a confident person. But the truth was, I had to talk myself into leaving the house on some days. And some days, I never did leave. My anxiety in social settings was crippling, and my feelings of despair and self-hatred were intense. Accepting the fact that my actions do not control others opened up a world where I was free to make mistakes. It opened up a world where I didn't have to be perfect. It opened a world where I could make errors, where I could apologize and try again. It opened up a world of self-acceptance, a world where I could learn who I was without the pressure of being perfect, and learn to love myself in all of my glorious imperfection. because. I am imperfect. Living in acceptance has brought a new freedom to my life. It has freed me from worry and regret. It has freed me from shame and guilt. I recognize that others will make their own choices, and I am not responsible for those choices. All I am responsible for is myself, my actions, and how I react to others. I want to be the absolute best person I can for me, not because I believe that it will somehow bend the universe to my will. And I've learned to love and accept myself. That is part of living in recovery. Acceptance and self-love. Second, living in recovery requires me to live in consultation. Living in acceptance helped me understand that I wasn't perfect. That my thinking wasn't perfect. And it helped me give up the pressure of being perfect. However, I went from needing to always be right, always be perfect, to the absolute other extreme. Could I even trust myself? Was I making the right decision? Was I saying the right thing? Was I doing the right thing? Before recovery, my perfectionism would have never thought to consult with someone else about how I was handling a situation. In fact, the year before I started recovery, I was asked to take a leadership assessment for work, the LPI. I answered 40 questions about my leadership style. My coworkers, managers, and friends answered the same 40 questions. Then the results were compared. It was incredibly insightful, amazing, really. One of the pieces of feedback the facilitator helped me understand that I didn't see at first was a discrepancy in the scoring from my coworkers. They all rated me really high on asking for their opinion and feedback on my projects. But they also rated me really low on the topic of feeling heard or that their ideas and feedback was valued. Wow, they were right. I would ask them about their thoughts and opinions because I knew that is what I should do to get their buy-in. So they felt part of the process, right? But I knew going into it that I wasn't going to take or use their feedback. I would do it how I wanted to do it, no matter what they said. I, I asked them because I felt that that was important, but I wasn't willing to even listen to anything that they had to say. I didn't know that they could see that or that they were even aware of it. But now, as I learned to accept reality, my powerlessness, my unmanageability, my addiction, I also had to learn to live in consultation not having to be perfect all the time to hold up the mask of roses and bliss, I could see that I had huge blind spots. I had faulty thinking, lots of faulty thinking. I learned that I was not as great as I thought I was. I saw the flaws in my logic and where my own best thinking had failed me. And so I had to learn to ask for help. I had to seek other people's ideas and actually listen to them. Not just ask because I thought I should ask, but ask because I really wanted to know. And not only ask for help, but be willing to listen to what they had to say, consider it, honestly consider it, and then be willing to change my course of action if their feedback warranted it. That is so hard for someone who has a perfectionist complex like I did, but it has saved me on more than one occasion. I consult with my therapist, my sponsor, group members, others in recovery. I also consult with a few friends that I have in my inner circle. I've learned to live in consultation and I am so much better for it. When I'm in consultation, I'm living in recovery. Third, living in recovery requires me to live in rigorous honesty. This was so hard for me. When I started recovery, I was a liar. I lied about everything. I lied about the food I ate, where I was, where I was going. I embellished or exaggerated stories, another form of lying. I lied by omission, by not telling someone something that I knew. I lied. I was a liar. In addition to lying outright to others, I lied to myself like there was no tomorrow. So much lying. I would fantasize about people I knew, I would make up stories in my head about them, and then I would treat them like the stories were real. Man, fantasy is another way that we lie to ourselves. I could actually cry while I was fantasizing stories. That's how like, I would have an emotional response to these lies that I was telling myself. I was a liar. Beyond straightforward lying, telling a falsehood, are other forms of lying too, justification and rationalization. I am queen of both of those kingdoms, the kingdom of justification and the kingdom of rationalization. I am hardcore and I can talk myself in or out of anything at any time. I can also pretty much talk anyone else in or out of a behavior nearly every time. But this is what I've learned. Lying is the first step to relapse for me. See, because lying is a secret. When I lie, I'm holding a secret inside. Even if it's small, like I'm headed to a meeting and someone in my life asks, where are you going tonight? And I say, oh, I'm headed to book club. Eh, Sure, my 12-step fellowship could be considered a book club, right? We definitely study from a book every week, don't we? But somehow, when I get in the car... I get this little high from lying to someone and I feel the need to hide it. Sometimes my mind will say, oh, you already lied about where you're going. You should just go someplace totally different. It won't matter. (laughs) Yeah. If I let that thought go on too long, I can find myself in deep water very, very quickly. Stopping the lying was hard. It is still hard sometimes. I've learned that the best way to stop is to just call attention to it straightforward and to tell others. I will say, No, I lied, and then I will tell the truth. Or I will say, No, I didn't actually say that. I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have thought of that in the moment, but I didn't. It's still hard for me. I still find myself embellishing or exaggerating just a little bit here or there. I find when I retell a story that I add things that I wish I would have said but I didn't actually say them. I have to be diligent and vigilant about lying. There are rewards to this kind of honesty, though. See, I never find myself wondering, oh, what version of the story do these people know? (laughs) The management of the web of lies that I had told was time-consuming. Living in rigorous honesty brings self-confidence. It helps me learn to trust myself. It helps me learn to accept feedback. It helps me learn to live in acceptance as well. Acceptance of the truth. When I'm honest, I'm living in recovery. Fourth and last, living in recovery requires me to live in gratitude. When I first read my addiction recovery books, I cried. I sobbed. Here was someone who knew what I felt and had written it down in words and published it in a book. I was grateful for the bravery and courage of these people that came before. As I read more and more literature, I was introduced to more and more people in recovery. I became more and more grateful for those brave enough to be vulnerable and share their shame and recovery with me. Next came my sponsor. She tirelessly listened to me. She answered the phone when I called. She prayed for me. She took time to spend with me. She was busy. She had a full time job, a house to take care of, and a life outside of recovery to live. But she selflessly shared with me on my journey. I became grateful for her and the sacrifices that she made for me. Then I started to see the small miracles in my life. I stayed sober. I worked through a difficult experience with my family. I received help in a moment of need. I saw the hand of my higher power more and more in my life, and the more and more I acknowledged it, the more and more grateful I became. Gratitude requires humility. It requires me to let go of my pride and ego and acknowledge that there is a world with people in it outside of myself, and these people positively contribute to my life. Not everything was doom and gloom. Not everything was betrayal and rejection like I had told myself. I went from living in scarcity, in competition with everyone else for love, affection, attention, knowledge, and resources, to living in gratitude and abundance, where there was always someone willing to help me, where there was always help when I needed it. I went from feeling unlovable, unseen, and unnoticed, to feeling incredibly valuable to the people around me who were so willing to support and sacrifice for me. When I have moments when I'm struggling, where I'm starting to feel entitled or unseen or unnoticed, I practice gratitude. I make a list of everything I'm grateful for. I start with the routine things, hands, feet, body, hair, sight, flowers. And then I focus on just that day. What happened just that day that was amazing? It is amazing how helpful that is. When I'm grateful, I'm living in recovery. These are just four of the principles required of me when I live in recovery. Living in recovery requires acceptance. Living in recovery requires consultation. Living in recovery requires honesty. And living in recovery requires gratitude. They are hard. They are real. They take work. Work that continues even after I get sober. But they are part of what makes recovery so great. They give me hope for freedom. They keep my addiction and my negative attitudes in check. They are the solid foundation I'm using to build my new life. My life in recovery. What are some of the principles that recovery requires of you? Get online at worthrecovery.com, click on this podcast, episode 26, and comment or share some of the principles that you find most helpful in recovery. As always, ladies, I want you to know that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this moment, you are worth recovery. You are worth it, 100% worth it. Keep working at it, keep up the fight. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy.